For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So is the Bible relevant today? Really, what we're asking is, why should I trust the Bible? There's all these books, there's all these different ideas from different cultures, different people, different times. Everybody's saying they have the secret to the mysteries of life and the answers to our, e- for, to our deep internal yearnings. What makes the Bible more valuable? What makes it more true? Why should I examine the Bible uh, over any other text? Wasn't the Bible written by men over 2,000 years ago? Why should I care what it says? <clears throat> Many believe it's antiquated. Uh, it doesn't, it's not relevant to our values, the way that we live. We've, we've grown beyond this way of thinking. Uh, and so that's something that God in the Bible has something to say about. He talks about why we should believe in him and why specifically and how specifically he's given us evidence to believe that he has spoken to us specifically through the Bible. What evidence does the Bible offer that Jesus is someone that I should listen to? Why should I put my faith in him? So we've been talking, you know, over the last few weeks about some of these big questions and seeing how the Bible is compatible with modern science. That they are not necessarily at odds at one another, but there are ways of being true to understanding and interpreting the Bible in a way that's consistent with its author's intent that does not put us intellectually... um, at cross-purposes with modern science. The Bible has many meaningful answers. It has a lot to say about some of the most important questions that plague us, that bother us. The big questions about who am I? Why am I here? Is there meaning to my life? Is there value to my life? Do I matter? And we talked two weeks ago a lot about this question of why is there so much pain and suffering? Why do I look out into the world and see so much injustice? And so these are very much at the heart of what it means to study the Bible is to seek answers to some of these fundamental questions about our existence and who we are and why are we here. And what we really want is evidence. We want reasons. God gave us minds. Why would I trust any religion or any book or any person or anything that was asking for my blind allegiance? Blind faith where I'm just going to leap and, and set the, the, the course of my life according to the morals or principles of something that <clears throat> doesn't offer any reasons for me to follow it, except maybe this is what my parents believed, or my parents' parents, or this is what my culture, this is my cultural heritage. That's not enough. If, it, if we're to take the Bible seriously, the questions that the Bible asks and the way that it answers it, if we're to take it seriously, we should, we should need and we should require evidence for why we should listen to the claims that it makes. And God understands this. God made us. God made our minds. He made our souls. It is a part of how God made us that makes us ask these questions and desire truth. 
God is the God of truth, and He created us in His image. And so ultimately, when we're asking these questions, if we're being intellectually honest, what we're doing is we're pursuing truth. How do I understand what is real and how it applies to me? One of the ways that the Bible does this is it's uniquely rooted in history. When you read through the Old and New Testaments, what you see are geography that's real, people that are real, rulers and key figures that uh, archaeology and history affirm. These people were real. They happened. There may be some debate about whether the claims of those, of, that the Bible makes about some of those circumstances are real, but it's not as though these are made-up places, made-up people, and made-up times. The Bible offers a highly believable and compelling explanation to the human condition. And what I mean by that is, is as you start to study and understand God's explanation of us, this idea that we're made in His image, that we're different from every other animal, every other created thing. Clearly, we have to agree that as we look at the human race, there is nothing else remotely like us on the planet, for good or for bad. Nothing is like us. Why is that? When we examine ourselves, and we prefer to examine our fellow man, what we find is that there's noble things. There's love, there's compassion, there's mercy, there's generosity, there's self-sacrifice, things that are noble and good and wonderful. But then we also see that there's greed, there's hate, there's evil, there's anger, there's lust, there's the ability to destroy on a mass scale. How do, you know, when people throw out that question, are humans basically good (coughs) or basically evil, you know, That's a question that a lot of people wrestle with, and people tend to fall down on one side or the other of that, but the Bible splits it right down the middle and says, yes, you were made to be good, but you chose evil because you were given free choice, and we talked a lot about that two weeks ago. And, you know, so the reality is, is that if the Bible is from our maker, it has to be true, it has to be accurate. It has to be rooted in reality, not in a fantasy world. And it has to explain things that can be verified, which it does. It also has to accurately say something and and depict the human condition. It has to explain some things about why we are the way that we are. And I think the Bible does that better than any other religious text. And it also offers prophecy as a form, a strong form of authenticating the claims, the Bible says that it is, it is inspired by God, that the creator God of the universe has communicated his will through human agency and the power of his Holy Spirit so because he wants to speak to us throughout all of our generations. And he makes the point, God himself makes the point that one way that we can be sure it is him is because of the prophecy that's littered throughout this book. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8 says this, This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies. I am the first and the last. There is no other God who is like me. 
Let him step forward and prove to you his power. Let him do as I have done since ancient times when I established a people and explained its future. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim my purposes for you long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any other God? No. There is no other rock, not one. It's fascinating. So God, you know, takes the microphone and he's like, listen, look at this book. Look at the way it accurately predicts the future in a way that no human being ever has or ever could. And let that sink in. Let that ruminate in your mind. What does that mean? Look at what I'm saying and look at what I'm promising and look at the flow of human history and see that I am in charge. And I'm explaining this to you so that you will have evidence to know that I am real. That you can have confidence in me. He goes on in Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. It says, remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. He says, you want to know how I can tell the future? Because I planned it. Because I have a will and a mind, and I have a plan for where all of this is headed and how it's going to work. So I can give you clues and pieces of that plan so that as you see those things unfold, you can have confidence and know that I am real. So we're challenged by God to consider that question. Is the Bible just a book written 2,000 years ago? And is it the musings of ancient man? And it's now culturally irrelevant. It has nothing to do with the way we live our lives. It has nothing to say about who we are. Or is it the revealed word of our creator who wants to be involved in our lives and is intimately involved in our past, our present, and our future? If God really is God, he can predict the flow of human history because it's his plan. And if the Bible is really from God, it will have prophecy. It will be able to explain the future at a quality that no one else will be able to compete with. A lot of people say, well, there's a lot of weird stuff out there, and there's a lot of people that, you know, have claimed to talk about the future, and you can look at prophecies and other texts, and I, I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to compare. What we want to do tonight is compare some of the prophecies that you find out outside of Scripture with just a few of the prophecies that we find in Scripture. Bad prophecy is prolific. And it's easy. All you really have to do is state things in a vague or general way and give no time frame to it, right? And you could seem, especially in the passages of time, you can seem like a prophet. Like I could say, there will be a terrible car crash on the corner of Cleveland Avenue and Morris Road, right? And you'd be like, okay, well, let's see. Well, how much time? I didn't give a time frame, right? And if you know what I know, right, and what the Columbus Dispatch says, that that's the worst intersection in Columbus, 
And there have been 133 motor vehicle crashes, 55 injuries, and two fatalities at that one intersection. I'm just playing the odds, right? I'm not a prophet. I just know that given enough time in that situation, something bad's going to happen again. And that's, what a lot, that's a lot like what you see. And you can dress it up. Here's a, here's a really, I think, powerful prophecy. In the epochs of time, when the mistake on the lake has been reversed, the faithful will reap the fortunes of Lombardi. That's Ryan Lowry. Who read that one? Because I'm a Browns fan. And... Now, that would be fantastic. That would be an incredible prophecy, wouldn't it? Except that, again, I've got 50 years. I may need them, right? But, you know, it's been a rough road. And so it might seem fantastic for me to, if, especially if I jazz it up talking about reaping the fortunes of Lombardi, right? It's like, ooh. But all I'm doing is making a vague statement. And I'll probably, if I live and die and the Browns don't win a Super Bowl, Maybe in 70, 80 years after I'm gone, and people will be like, oh, he was right. <laughs> a lot of people point to Nostradamus as an example of uh, having incredible prescience and telling the future. This is from Century 2, Quatrain 34. It was written around 50, 1555 by Nostradamus. And he writes, the senseless ire of the furious combat will cause steel to be flashed at the table by brothers. To part them, death, wound, and curiously, the proud will come to, hard, to harm France. Now, what I hope that you see is this is really no different than the two things that I made up. It's vague, it's confusing, and he's had 500 years where we can look at his writings and look for things. And this has happened throughout history where different things have been attributed to different prophecies of Nostradamus for different generations because there's a lot you can do with this kind of verbiage. Uh, the way that it's typically explained is that this particular prophecy, the way it's being explained these days, predicts the Camp David peace agreement in 1978. The table is the bargaining table. The proud duel is terrorism. And the harm to, uh, to, the harm is for the, the harm to France is destabilization in the Near East. There's, this is from the book um, Nostradamus, Countdown to the Apocalypse, explaining how this incredible prophet has given us the future and nailed from 500 years back the Camp David Peace Accords of 1978. This is the way that charlatans work. This is, you know, there's a way of just stating the obvious or being so obscure that it seems like what you're saying has meaning. Others are specific, but more obvious. When I was growing up, there was what we were called, they called our psychic friends. This was pre-internet, right? But if you were in high school like I was, and it was 2 o'clock in the morning, the ads started coming on, dial your psychic friend, right? And what are they doing? They're playing on, they're preying on the needy, the hopeless, and the desperate. You know, you call into your psychic friend, and what are the things that they would tell you? They would say, well, you're lonely. I sense that you're lonely. It's like you're calling someone at 2 o'clock in the morning, paying a dollar a minute 
it's not a giant leap to say, I think you're lonely, right? This is the way this works. They say, well, you hate your job. Yeah, most people hate their jobs. You're just playing the odds. You're calling a psychic, right? And you're going to want to know about relationships. You're going to want to know about money. You're going to want to know about career when you want to know about your future. You feel lost, someone will say. You know, and you're like, wow, you're three for three. I am lonely. I hate my job and I feel lost. Welcome to the human race. (laughs) This isn't magic. You're struggling with your finances. You're paying a dollar a minute to talk to a stranger on the phone. Odds are you're not making wise financial choices. I mean, I do, I am making light of it, but the reality is, is the need that drives it is not funny. It's, it's, it's desperate. And this is trying to fit a need, a desire That is God-given. We are susceptible to this kind of fraud because we want evidence, because we want meaning, because we want to know, is there something out there that's greater than myself? Does it want to speak to me? Is there a way to tap into a power that's greater than myself that can help me get my life together and help me to live in a way where I can find fulfillment and happiness. I want to know what's real and what's true. That's God's design right there. But God's answer to that is none of these other things. It's His Word. It's a relationship, a connection with Him. What the Bible offers is a personal connection with your Creator through the person of Jesus Christ. And what prophecy does is gives you evidence and reason to believe that it's real. And it is very intentional in the way that it goes about that. The Bible does have answers. And it has incredible historical evidence. And it's very intentional. It's very intentional that God uses prophecy as a way to uniquely stand out above all the noise to give us confidence that the answers there are unlike any other answer. So let's look at a good example of biblical prophecy. I've given you some some other examples. Let's look at the qualitative difference between biblical prophecy and everything else. A good study would be to look at the prophecy regarding the regathering of Israel. This is one of the most powerful, one of the most repeated, one of the most specific predictions in Scripture spanning both the Old and New Testaments. And to really understand it, to really appreciate it, you have to know a little bit about the history of Israel. Israel is a tiny, tiny country. If the globe If we had a globe the size of a beach ball, Israel would be smaller than a postage stamp. Yet we all know about it. We all know that it plays a major role in the world in terms of our understanding of religion. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all trace their roots back to events that were happening in this region. It's from top to bottom, north to south, north to south, 
It's about the length of the distance as it is from here to Cleveland. That's the entire size of the nation, and it's only about 70 miles wide. Yet, it is so much at the center of our religious understanding. Israel became a nation around 1000 BC. God had promised Abraham that he would gather his descendants and give them a land and make them into a mighty nation. And the people uh, were freed from slavery in Egypt, led across the desert, took a little detour for 40 years, and then began occupying the land that God had promised them. And they came into their own around 1000 BC, and they were there as a, as a unified people and nation for a very short time. It was only about two, maybe three generations until it divided in 928 BC. Both were rebellious. Both were not really paying that much attention to what God had told them. God had made them a deal. Follow me and I will protect you from the outside uh, forces, the much greater empires and armies that would want to destroy you. But betray me and worship, <coughs> worship false gods and I'll let them come in and take you. So the, the, the nation divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah under Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And after a short period, God sent Assyria, one of the greatest armies and nations on the earth at that time, in 722 BC, after warning them for 200 years that he was going to do this if they didn't, if they didn't turn around and follow through on their agreement with him. And Assyria came in and wiped out the northern kingdom. Now, if you're Judah, you think that might be like, okay, guys, it's time to pray. It's time to get real about God of the Bible. And they did a little bit for a short time. But a hundred years later, the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, they came in and took over the Assyrian Empire. And once that happened, it was a very short period until Israel was wiped from the face of the earth. The temple, the religious center of the culture and religion of the Jewish people was destroyed around 607 B.C., and thousands of Jewish people were called into Babylon under captivity and told to resettle and that there would be no Israel and that they were to become Babylonians. And that is the first time Israel was destroyed and regathered. Because the part of the plan that God had let them know from the very beginning was the Babylonians are going to come in and they are only going to come in and, and take you away for 70 years and then I'm going to regather you. This was predicted by the prophet Jeremiah in around 626 BC. Jeremiah 29, 10, 11 says, this is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Do you see how clear that is? God says, you are still my people even though you have betrayed me and you have not listened and you have not kept up your end of the bargain. I'm going to bring these people in. I'm going to let them wipe you out. But then after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. And that's exactly what happened. The people were, were taken to Babylon. They were there for 70 years. 
and they were brought back. Around 50,000 people returned from Babylon in the time of Nehemiah, 70 years later. And another group led by Nehemiah from Persia, modern-day Iran, came back, and they rebuilt the temple, and they reestablished the nation of Israel after being wiped off the map for 70 years. And you're like, oh, that's, that's impressive, you know? That's really interesting, and, and that was predicted, and that was promised, and this is evidence that God keeps His promises and works through people. But that's not what we're here to talk about. The really fantastic prophecy was not the first dispersion and regathering, but the second dispersion and regathering, which was an order of magnitude different. The temple... The second temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, utterly annihilated. The Jews, after the time, shortly after the time of Jesus, rose up in rebellion, tried to kick Rome out and regain their independence, and a horrible war was launched over a period of about 30, 40 years in which Rome completely decimated Israel, destroyed the temple, uh, forbade any Jewish people to live in Jerusalem, spread them their people all over the Roman Empire, and brought in new people to bring new culture so that they would never again have to deal with this stubborn, stiff-necked people that kept rebelling against the, the, the greatness of Rome. Yet, almost 2,000 years later, in 1948, in the wake of World War II, And at a time where the Jewish people, for once, had the compassion of the world upon them, got their country back, got their nation back after 2,000 years. And this was predicted in very certain terms all over the Old and New Testament. Let's start with Moses talking about this in 1500 B.C., Moses had led them out of Egypt, had wandered in the desert with them. They were getting ready to take the land. He's getting ready to die. And he's like, I'm warning you guys. I know what you're like. And I know as soon as I die, you're going to start worshiping other gods. And if you do that, God's going to come in and he's going to destroy our nation and our people. But he says in Deuteronomy 33 through 5, then the Lord God will restore your fortunes. He will have mercy on you and gather you back from all the nations where he has scattered you. Even though you are banished to the ends of the earth. This is why this is about the second and not the first. The first, they went two places. And then they were back after 70 years. He's saying, you're going to be spread, destroyed and spread all over the world. And the Lord will gather you from there and back again. The Lord, your God will return you to the land that belonged to your ancestors. And you will possess that land again. Then he will make you even more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. You say, okay, I mean, maybe that's one. Okay. That seems like that's what that's talking about, but we're just getting started. Isaiah also predicted the same event. And he was writing in 700 BC. Isaiah 11, 11 through 12. And that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to bring back the remnant of his people. 
Those who remain in Assyria and northern Egypt and in southern Egypt and Ethiopia and Elam and Babylonia and Hamath and all the distant coastlands. He will raise a flag among the nations, assemble the exiles of Israel, and he will gather the scattered people of Judah from the ends of the earth. Now, sometimes people like to say, well, this is about the first one from Babylon. But why would that be incorrect? Now, Isaiah is writing before the first exile into Babylon. He's writing before that happened, but what does he say? For a second time. At the time he's writing this, it hadn't happened the first time. And it was a worldwide dispersion to all the nations of the earth. So here Isaiah is predicting the exact same event and calling it for a second time before it had happened the first time. If you look at the nations that Isaiah specifically mentions in his prophecy, you can look at the populations of Jewish people pre-1948, and you have in Egypt, there were 66,000. He says Assyria and Babylon, that's modern-day Iraq. He says Hamath, that's modern-day Syria. And he says Elam, which is modern-day Iran. And you see that there were large populations of Jewish people in each of those countries before 1948. And they essentially drained them all out of these other nations, and they are now in Israel, exactly the way that Isaiah predicted would happen. Pretty remarkable. That's a step up. Okay, Moses, you did good, but Isaiah, that was a little more specific, a little more clear. Well, Ezekiel takes a crack at it too. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 10, it says, The Lord took hold of me. I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He's having a vision. He says, The Lord led me all around the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. Then he said to me, Son of man, can these bones become living people again? And I said, O sovereign Lord, I replied, You alone know the answer to that. And then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am going to breathe into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscle on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. The image here is he goes to this terrible valley that's just filled with bones and they stand up and they begin assembling and you can watch the sinew and muscle and bone and skin forming back into these people and then they begin to breathe and he says then you will know i am the lord so i spoke this message just as he told me and suddenly i spoke and there was a rattling noise across the valley and the bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons then as i watched muscles and flesh formed over the bones skin formed to cover their bodies but there still had no breath of them then he said to me speak a prophetic message to the wind son of man speak a prophetic message and say this is what the sovereign lord commands come o breath from the four winds breathe into these dead bodies so they will be made alive again So I spoke the message as he commanded to me, and breath came into their bodies, and they all came to life and stood up on their feet, a great army. Now you might be thinking, this is not like the other ones. This is figurative. It's not specific. How do we know that this is about the regathering of Israel? Because after God gives him the vision, he gives him the interpretation. Ezekiel 37, 21. 
and give them this message from the sovereign Lord. I will gather the people of Israel from among the nations. I will bring them home to their own land for the places where they have been scattered. I will unify them into one nation on the mountain of Israel. One king will rule them all. No longer will they be divided into two nations or into two kingdoms. He makes it very clear. I'm going to bring them back from the dead. It will be gone. They will be long gone. These will be dry bones. And yet I will bring life back and bring my people back from every corner of the earth. And they will live and flourish again. Ezekiel's writing during the Babylonian captivity. And he's talking about a regathering that is much much more indicative of the second regathering because it's happening from all around the world, from all nations. And it's happened over a long period of time. A process is being described. And yet we also know that this is not completely fulfilled. Ezekiel's prophecy of the dry bones says that the nation of Israel will come together and live again and come back from the dead and they all will worship God. But the nation of Israel today is largely secular. That process, in many ways, according to Scripture, is still ongoing. There's a nation established in 1948. Jews from all over the world have gone to live there. But it is not the nation yet that God wants it to be. And I should take the time to explain also that as I'm explaining this prophecy, I am not saying that Israel is a righteous nation and everything they do is the will of God. There's a humanitarian crisis of epic proportions happening there. And we're not taking sides in that issue. All we're saying is God predicted in no uncertain terms that this would happen. Zechariah, another prophet, Zechariah 10, 8 through 10, when I whistle to them, they will come running, for I have redeemed them. For from the few who are left, they will grow as numerous as they were before. Though I have scattered them like seeds among the nations, they will still remember me in distant lands. They and their children will survive and return again to Israel. I will bring them back from Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will resettle them in Gilead and Lebanon until there is no more room for them all. I am going to bring back together this scattered people in a way that's never been done in history. You say, well, is that the first regathering or is that the second regathering? Zechariah is writing after the first regathering. He's writing in 480 BC. He's predicting the next destruction of Israel and the regathering that would happen. The first one is in his history. When you look at it from that perspective, he's predicting 500 years before the event, the destruction of Israel in 70 AD, and he's predicting 2,500 years before the event, the regathering of Israel in 1948. That's impressive. Isaiah, Moses, Zechariah, Ezekiel, all saying the same thing. Well, let's not forget about Jesus Christ. Matthew 24, 1 through 2, Jesus is hanging out by the temple. And as they're leaving the grounds, his disciples point out the various temple videos. They're like, Lord, isn't this place impressive? And Jesus is like, do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth. They will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. 
this whole place is going to be decimated. In Luke 21, 20 to 24, he talks about the time when, of the Gentiles when they will come in and destroy Jerusalem. And he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you will know that the time of its destruction has arrived. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. Those in Jerusalem must get out. And those in the country should not return to the city. For those will be the days of God's vengeance and the prophetic words of the scriptures will be fulfilled. Jesus is reading his Old Testament. And he's saying, this is about to happen. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days, for there will be a disaster in the land and a great anger against the people, and they will be killed by the sword or sent away as captives to all the nations of the world. And Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles. Gentiles is just a generic term, meaning all non-Jewish people, until the period of the Gentiles comes to an end. Jesus, writing around or saying this around between 30 and 33 AD, is describing exactly what happened when Rome came in and destroyed the temple in 70 AD. And he's hinting that there will be yet another regathering because he says that this will continue until the period of the Gentiles comes to an end. Unbelievable. Remarkable. I said to you that the God of the Bible is a God of history. That the prophecies, the things that he describes are clear and they're verifiable. If you look at the history of what we're talking about, Israel regathered from the first time around 500 BC, put under Greek rule under Alexander the Great in 350, a brief period of independence under the Maccabean Revolt in 167, under Roman rule starting in 63 BC, The best date for Jesus' death and resurrection is 33 AD. The Roman destruction of the temple, we know, was 70 AD. And at the end, all Jews were banned from Jerusalem in 136 and had been wiped out from the holy city and spread intentionally all over the Roman Empire, the largest empire in the world of the time so that they could no longer be a people, no longer have a culture, and they would never regather again. And it worked for almost 2,000 years. That's how good Rome was at doing this. Until the atrocities against the Jews in World War II, which brought the world together in compassion. And whether you agree with it or not, gave them back their land exactly as the prophets said would happen. Now, there are many possible objections to this. You could look at this and you could say, well, this stuff could be made up after the fact, right? (laughs) That's the way that a lot of times people like to look at Old Testament prophecy and they're like, well, this was written after the fact. Really? Uh, We're talking about 1948 here. We're talking about something that happened in some of our lifetimes. And we have copies of all of these scriptures that predate 1948. I'm not talking about we think they were written back then. We have physical copies that are a thousand years older than 1948. And they say the same thing. They have not been altered. 
The Old Testament prophecies, which is the majority of what we looked at, we have copies that predate the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by 200 years. The Dead Sea Scrolls contain all the prophecies I read to you, and they said the exact same thing in 200 BC. These are physical copies that you can see and test and read. So that makes this idea ridiculous. This is and was predicted accurately by the God of the Bible. Well, you could say, well, you know, it was a safe bet that at some point Israel would return. You know, it's like me saying there's going to be a car accident on Morris Road and Cleveland Avenue. Not if you understand history and not if you understand Rome. Not after a nation was gone with no central point of their own for 2,000 years. You know, Rome destroyed many cultures. Wiped them from the face of the earth. You know what they would do? Well, if you rebelled against Rome, they'd be like, look, you can pay your taxes and basically we'll leave you alone. But if you don't, we're going to come in and we are going to wipe you out. We're going to kill you. We're going to kill everyone you know. We're going to kill your dog. We're going to rub salt in your farmland. And no one is ever going to have heard of you again. And then they would bring in a historian to write down the culture of the people they had destroyed so they could put it up on a shelf in Rome and be like, if you ever want to know about the Gauls and who they were, you can read about them here because they are no more. Have you ever met a Gaul? What do we know about the Gauls? We know about it a little tiny bit about them from archaeology and everything else we know about them is from the Romans and what they preserved, and their version of what they decided to tell us about the Gauls. Have you ever met a goth? If you went to high school in the 90s, you did. <laughs> I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the people that were destroyed and wiped out, and we know nothing, relatively nothing about them, except for what Rome tells us. The Celts were the same thing. They were masters at destroying, wiping people out and assimilating. You know, we talk about languages. We talk about the Latin languages. We talk about Western culture. What is Western culture? It's all the people that got destroyed and beat up by Rome and Greece and have basically the same values and ideals because we were assimilated together into one ideology. Because Rome did that. That's what they did. How many of them ever came back and have a nation today? One. This one. An incredible mix of prophecies, dozens of prophecies, where the prophets, at least eight individual different prophets, who are in their own timeline separated for hundreds of years from each other, talking about events that would not come to fruition for thousands of years, in incredibly specific and historical, verifiable ways. Israel was destroyed by the Gentiles. The Jewish people were dispersed all over the world. And they're back. A gradual return has occurred unlike any other event in human history. And God told us the details you know, there was a time where you were reading these prophecies 
pre-1948, that there would be again a nation of Israel. You can go back and read commentaries from that period, and they are all like, of course this isn't literal, it's figurative. You know, Israel is, you know, is, is an idea, it's a thought, it's in our hearts. We know there'll never be an actual nation of Israel. Biblical believing scholars couldn't believe that there would ever be an Israel again. It was done. It was gone. The people were, were spread out all over the place. They would never be formed back into a nation. And yet, here we are. Biblical prophecy is clear. It's specific. It's repeated. And it's verifiable. It's not like any other thing, any other claim. It separates people from vents over hundreds or even thousands of years, and it hits the nail on the head with the incredible specifics. And God says He does this on purpose so that we would have evidence, powerful evidence, that what we're reading is not a book written by men 2,000 years ago but a word inspired by him and preserved for us because it has the answers to the questions we hold most dear. We haven't even talked about messianic prophecy. The dozens upon dozens of prophecies because the, the identity and the authentic, uh, being able to authenticate who was actually the promised Messiah, God who came to dwell among us, that would be need to be one of the most verifiable events in biblical history. And so there's all kinds of prophecy throughout the Old and New Testaments. Things about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Things about how the, the, the men who crucified Jesus would cast lots for his clothing while he was crucified. Written a thousand years before it happened. And by the way, written 700 years before crucifixion was invented. They said they would pierce his hands and his feet and cast lots for his clothing. Daniel 9, written in 530 BC, in an incredible, incredible degree of specificity, accurately predicts the year that Jesus would die to 33 AD. Jim Leffel did an awesome teaching on it this morning. I'd encourage you, if you were interested in it, to, to listen to that teaching. We don't have time to go into the details of this particular prophecy, but there are many here who can explain it to you and will be terrified if you ask. <laughs> it's complicated, but it's so amazing because it's so complicated, yet it works. Here's one piece of Daniel 9 I'll share with you because Daniel also predicts the destruction of the temple, the second destruction of the temple. Let's look at Daniel 9.26. He's talking about the time when the Messiah would arrive. And he says, after this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one, that's the Messiah, will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. What an amazing thing, because what happened was Jesus went and died, and there were three days between his death and his resurrection. Everyone was like, the Messiah is not supposed to die. And they thought this was for nothing. And Daniel says, that's exactly what's going to happen. He's writing it in 530 BC. And then he says, and a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple after the Messiah dies. And the end will come with a flood and a war and its miseries are decreed from that time to every end. Unbelievable. 
Jesus is going to come and, th- and he's going to die in 33 AD. And then the temple, the an army will raise up and utterly destroy the temple. And it happened just like that. Jesus said in Luke 24, 44, when I was with you before, I told you everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. I must be consistent with myself. I cannot lie. I have to fulfill everything that the Bible says about the Messiah so that you will know that there is a God and that he works in human history and that this is not just a charlatan. This is not a scam. This is not human musing. This is the God of the universe speaking. Is the Bible relevant today? That's the question we began with. We haven't even talked about unfulfilled prophecy. The Bible accurately predicts a future where the world will essentially come together with a common government and a common economy. How would that have happened pre-information technology? It predicts that there will be all buying and selling will occur because each person will be assigned a number and that's how you will buy and sell. Do you know how crazy that is to the contemporary audience to which it was written around 70 AD? But it makes a lot of sense today. It's totally foreseeable how that could happen. The Bible predicts there will be a new Jewish temple in Jerusalem. That hasn't happened yet. And boy, can we imagine it would be difficult to see that happening. Yet there are many who desire to see it. There's a well-funded organization called the Temple Institute with the backings of millions upon millions of dollars who right now is building the implements that are needed to resume the sacrifice on the Temple Mount in anticipation of what will have to be a bloody and terrible war and the rebuilding of the temple. The Bible predicts a worldwide crisis, a military action that would lead to the annihilation of every life, all human beings, if God did not intervene. How do you come up with that? How believable is that when the greatest technological terror that you have at the time it was written is a horse? (laughs) But it's easy for us to imagine how that could happen. Right to the brink. It says, but God will not let it happen. Of course, it predicts the return of Jesus as well. The time where God will bring an end to all the pain and all the suffering and all the evil. And he will call his children home. His children being all those who call out on his name and believe in him. John 1 says, as many believe in him, he gave the right to become children of God. The question is, and the bottom line here is, how should I respond to this? Understand that God is involved in human history. He is not detached. He is not far away. He is not disinterested. He knows what's going on. He knows where it's going. And he knows you. He's interested in you as an individual. And he has spoken and he has worked through the eons to provide this evidence so that you could look at it and come to the inevitable conclusion that there is something greater than ourselves. 
that the thoughts of my heart and the yearnings of my heart to be known and to be loved and to be understood were put there by God to be solved by God. The implications of this are that God has chosen to speak through the Bible. And it deserves our serious consideration. If nothing else, we should come out of here tonight like, okay, I need to know if this guy was full of it or not. And I need to know what else is there. What else am I missing? What else haven't they told me? Because there's so much. There's so much there. Jesus claims to be able to answer those questions, the deep yearning questions of your heart, to fill your need to be known and to be loved and to be significant. And God dares you. He dares you to use your brain to examine the evidence. Let's look again one more time at Isaiah 46, 5 through 11. To whom will you compare me, God says? Who is my equal? Remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. I will call a swift bird of prey from the east, a leader from a distant land to come and do my bidding. I have said what I would do, and I will do it. God is the God of truth, so he is not afraid of your questions. He dares you to examine what he has said. Because he knows that if you are on an honest search for truth based in evidence, it will lead you to him. Jesus also says, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That is a statement that is absolutely as true as the regathering of Israel. That's what we've got. God, we are really blown away by the fact that you care about us enough to leave a trail of such incredible evidence that we have just barely scratched the surface of tonight. I just pray for anyone here that doesn't know you. I just pray that they will be emboldened to ask their questions and that they will be motivated to examine the evidence and that you'll help each of us in our journey and our walk to continue to uh, seek truth and to not be afraid uh, to ask hard questions of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.